Welcome back to the Modern Lady Podcast. You're listening to episode 57. Hi, I'm Michelle. <laughs> you have to fix it. You can totally hear it when you break. <laughs> I was so close. I was so close. Welcome back to the Modern Lady Podcast. You're listening to episode 57. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Lindsay. And today we are talking about love. Love is a many splendored thing but with many layers and factors and depths. This week, with Valentine's Day just around the corner, we wanted to chat about C.S. Lewis's analysis of the four different types of love and dig a little bit deeper. But first, if you are enjoying the Modern Lady podcast, we would be so honored if you could take a minute to rate and review us on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a minute, but it really helps us stand out. When you take the time to comment, it truly makes our day. This week's shout-out goes to Jojo McGill, who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and said, quote, I'm so glad I found this podcast. Very creative, encouraging, and unique. My new favorite. End quote. Thank you for your rating and review, Jojo. We're so glad that you found us, too. And if you would like to leave us a comment, you can do so on our website, www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com. Or you can leave us a comment on Facebook or Instagram, where you can find us at The Modern Lady Podcast. But before we get into today's chat, Lindsay has our Modern Lady Tip of the Week. Hands. (laughs) (laughs) These tricky appendages always seem to get in the way, don't they, Michelle? Yes. (laughs) I suppose they do. (laughs) Now, just when you thought you couldn't be more self-conscious, I'm here to make you second-guess everything you thought about hand etiquette. This information comes from a page of a book that was scanned into social media, and sadly, I don't know the name of the book. But here are some hand don'ts. Number one, do not let your hands fall like dead fish at your sides. (laughs) This detracts from the silhouette of the figure, and they look lifeless. You know what, this one's pretty easy to remember. Just remember, no dead fish hands. Number two, do not fidget. The more quiet the hands, the more poise there is expressed. Number three, do not squeeze your hands together. This screams tension. Number four, do not hold both hands interlocked at the waistline. This adds weight to your figure. And number five, do not fold your arms and hide the hands. This drags the bust line down and it makes your shoulders sag. Now there is an exception to this one. You can only do this if you are tall and thin. And well, I'm short and stocky and my bust line's already at my belly button. So I know I'm never supposed to cross my arms again, ever. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I've never thought so much about my hands. And as you're saying, as you're saying all this, I'm just looking at my own hands sitting here in front of my microphone thinking I don't know what to do with these things <laughs> no so as anymore. I was reading them I got yeah. to number two the do not fidget and and as I'm saying that I was squeezing my hands and didn't realize until I hit number three which was do not squeeze your hands and I'm like yes. oh my gosh I can't even handle you know reading them and and I'm breaking all the rules as I'm reading the rules 
Right. And even like crossing your arms, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I know that uh, in terms of body language, it can come across in a negative way to the person right. you're speaking to. And so I was conscious of, about it in that way. But, <laughs> but now, now it just like added a whole new layer. <laughs> it's like, how is it making me look, look? <laughs> yeah. You don't want to drag that bus line down and make those shoulders sag. <laughs> yeah. No, not ideally. No. <laughs> <laughs> but for our tall and thin listeners, you go right ahead. Yeah. The four loves, as described by C.S. Lewis, are storge, which is affection, philia, which is friendship, eros, which is romance and passion, and agape, which is charity. Now, for something so important, our culture seems to actually understand so little of what true love really is and what it looks like. Right, Lindsay? Yeah, that's totally right. And it happens to be something that we talk about all the time. It's the one goal of most people out there, right? It's something that you start thinking about at a very young age. It's something you think about to the end of your life. Like it's just like this ever present thing in our lives. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like you said, we don't prepare for it really well. We don't educate ourselves about it. And we kind of have no idea what's going on with it a lot of the time. Yeah. And we kind of lump it into just the one term. Right. So like today we're going to talk about um, the four loves and then there are actually even four additional ones. And um, but we use just the word love to encompass all of them all the time. So it can you know, it can mean I love cheeseburgers, but also I love my spouse, (laughs) especially people like you and I. And we're so emphatic about things. Right. (laughs) So (laughs) we can love all the things every day. That's right. just can't possibly be the same word. Um, So let's break it down. And I think maybe people have come across these before, but it was such a great thing looking over it at this stage in my life, right? Having Mm -hmm. children that are a bit older, looking at my relationship. Jason and I have been together 20 years now. And so I loved looking. I loved, see? Um, See? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I enjoyed um, breaking down these different definitions and just applying them at this new stage in my life. Mm-hmm. And what's actually really interesting, too, when I was thinking more about this, I actually think that having a good understanding of love, the different kinds of love and what that requires of each of us in each different circumstance is actually probably an antidote to so many of the problems that our world faces and our cultures, mm. right? Because love, um, just in general, the definition, I know we've said it before in past podcasts, but just as a recap, like love is the uh, willing the good of the other person, yeah. right? And all of these four different kinds of love in some way or another, they they come under that umbrella. I have that in my notes too, Michelle. And one of the loves really exemplifies that. But do you know what's funny? Um, you and I, how we always talk about the, what we're loving this week, right? Yeah. At the end of our podcast. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, as you know, I was looking up if there was a Greek term for the love of material things so that we could throw that in, like oh. use the Greek for that at the end. Yes. But there, I couldn't find one. And actually, the more I think about that, I'm like, hmm, there's a massive lesson in that. There is no Greek word for the mm. love of material things, right? And I thought, okay, wow. we shouldn't love things like that. This is really about relationships between people and relationships between God and us. And so I thought actually that was quite striking. Okay, so the first type of love is called storge. And this is a familiar love. And I mean that literally in the sense of 
like family, familiar. (laughs) Um, It's similar to philia, which we'll explain later, but it is a multi-generational love. It is a love that flows between parent and child or grandparents and grandchild. Interestingly, this love can also be something that we share with like our closest childhood friends, people we grew up with, right? This is a childhood type of innocent love. Um, this can kind of be when it's a childhood love like that, um, a stumbling block as you grow older and your love has to be actually formed and rooted in different ways and have different elements to it because it is a very innocent love. It's sometimes called an asymmetrical love because it's rooted in a, um, a dependency on the caregiver versus like a give and take, like some of the other loves. And so, I was wondering if this is kind of the love that we're supposed to have for God, whereas his Mm. love for us is more agape. But I wonder if it's like this childlike faith and love that we're supposed to have for him that the Bible speaks of. Oh, my gosh. I love that because you're right. And like, we'll get to agape in a minute. But you can kind of see once we kind of talk about both of these types of love, how for us to express agape love to God Right. It doesn't. Yeah, you're right. I never thought of it that way before. And actually, that is consistent with what C.S. Lewis would describe as um, with Storge, too, as a dependency based mm. love, which he says it runs the risk of becoming extinct. Like you were just right. saying, if there are no longer needs, then that are right, being right. met. Right. So, yeah, that is so cool. Yeah. I love that because it is so familiar um, and it's rooted in fondness for someone um, mm. that we almost never catch it from its beginning. Like storge is just something we realize at some point this affection has already been there for some time, yeah. right? You just realize like, oh my gosh, I have so much fondness for you. But you, as opposed to like Eros or something, you'd be like, our relationship started when we saw each other or something yeah. like that. It's very different. Um, because of that, uh, a lot of people describe it as the most natural of the four loves. It's so organic um, and it's the most emotive and the most widely diffused, which means that it pays the least amount of attention to attributes that would merit love otherwise. So like this type of love is not necessarily earned. It's just given and it's there. And actually, there's one more point, which I loved because as this one speaker I was listening to was talking about Storge, he was saying that it's a, the most comfortable and the least ecstatic of all the loves. Mm. So it's really comforting. He was like, it's like the comfort you get from warm, fuzzy slippers or hearing your mom's sewing machine from the other room when you're sick. That's like <gasps> the feeling that you get. And I thought, is this uh-huh. like the hygge of the I love? Was just like, say okay. it. yes. <laughs> so yes. yeah, storge and hygge, they're gonna see us through the winter. But I just, yeah, I really thought that that was um, such an interesting way of describing the feeling that storge and affection would give. That's not boring at all, eh? Like when I was reading yeah. that one, I'm like, yeah, okay, that one's not as exciting as some of the other loves. But no, you're absolutely right. If it's the huga of love, um, it it can immediately conjures up a different feeling within somebody mm-hmm. when you think about that. I love that you kept using the word fondness. I feel like that's mm. not a word we use a lot, right? That we are yeah. fond of something. And that actually is going to, I'm going to pause and think about that a little bit more about things that I'm perhaps fond of versus loving all the things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and you know what? That fondness, um, they actually say that uh, storge is, acts as a base for many, if not all, of the other types of love, mm. right? Because it is this initial fondness that, um, that draws us deeper into another person most right. often, right? Like you think about Eros or Philia, the friendship and the romance loves, right? And um, the same speaker actually likened Storge to gin. And I was yeah, like, ooh, yeah. I just perked right up there. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. But they were saying that, you know, gin on its own, uh, okay, but it often acts as uh, a base for more elevated drinks and cocktails. Yeah. And so if we think about Storge in terms of that, it's not only more interesting than what we may have initially thought, but also more necessary too. Right. And, and on the flip side, I think if a child grows up without that, right, which sadly happens mm-hmm. a lot, I think then that is what then really negatively impacts their ability to experience the other kinds of love. It really is the foundation. Now, the next one is philia, which is affectionate love. So the ancient Greeks valued philia far more than eros because it is a love between equals. So this is when we're moving beyond that dependency of storge. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the love between friends. So Michelle, I can't believe I never knew this before because it's so obvi, but the word platonic (laughs) comes from Plato (laughs) and his belief that physical attraction is not a necessary part of love platonic love did you know that i did (laughs) not know that okay okay maybe not so obvious yeah you're not (laughs) you did not miss something obvious there (laughs) okay okay so aristotle called philia a dispassionate virtuous love meaning that it's free from the intensity of sexual attraction this is the love of friends that have been through the ringer together. These are your ride or die friendships, the deep friendships formed when you're on a team together or you're all working united towards the same goal, but like a prolonged goal. These are military friendships. This is like the friends you would meet at boarding school, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's often described too like that love of neighbor that Jesus mm-hmm. spoke of, right? Loving our yeah. neighbor as ourselves. And I, I, when I was reading about philia, you know, it was like the least natural or necessary of all the loves because we don't really need philia to yeah. say like propagate the human race <laughs> or something yeah, like that, yeah. right? But also like you, what you're saying, it's because of that in particular that throughout history, philia has been thought to be like one of these higher levels of love because it's so freely chosen. Like you don't need to, but you feel it. And then when you do, you choose it willingly. And C.S. Lewis, when he references philia, he talks about um, King David and Jonathan in the Bible, like that kind of a friendship. And he actually laments that uh, it's almost a lost art in our modern age to have this kind of friendship and love for someone else and that it is largely ignored in its cultivation today. I would say this is especially true in friendships between men. So Mm, if you look back at history, there is a great bonding between men in actual completely heterosexual physical intimacy, right? If you look at pictures of men in war, they have their arms around each other. They leaning on each other. There's like this physical closeness that men have completely rejected. I I don't know if out of a place of fear or whatever it is, but there's not that 
bond of brotherhood. And I do believe that sometimes throughout history, crisis can bring that on, that it can, you know, Mm -hmm. create that desire for that. And if almost all throughout history until recently, men were constantly at war, like all throughout history, right? There was, they were Mm -hmm. way at war with other men more than they were at home with their wives. And so there was that brotherhood. And I know plenty of men who are really starved for that kind of closeness and that friendship and that respect that that you can get from other men. I think women still have it. um, Mm -hmm. But I do really look at men and I wish that they could really enjoy their male companionship in a way that men used to and they just don't anymore. Mm -hmm. And I I do like, I do see a tendency, especially within the Catholic church and stuff like that. There are little things popping up all over the place that are really trying to foster that again, right? Yeah. Like, and as much as like, I want to join everything, (laughs) sometimes I take just a step back. Well, first of all, they won't let me in, but also (laughs) I don't even ask. I don't even put that on them to reject me because I, I really love seeing that camaraderie being fostered amongst men because you're right as a woman I feel like I have that with my girlfriends and my sisters and my mom and in a lot of other ways but um it it seems like it's so rare that I almost treat opportunities for male friendship and philia as like this sacred thing (laughs) that we really need to foster I think it's a crisis in masculinity right now. And Mm. so I think that once with those like church groups, I think it's really hard to convince men to go the first time. Um, Mm. And once it gets up and going, it it becomes a great thing in their lives. But it's, I know when those groups get started, it's really, really hard to get a guy to go to those. And so Mm -hmm. maybe it's something as listeners here and most of us women can commit to like pushing our husbands to go to those groups and saying, no, you know what? Things are good here. I'm happy. Don't let them know you're stressed. And, and just go go because it's just so <laughs> beneficial for them to have what we naturally have. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Okay, so the third type of love is eros, and this is probably the one we're like most familiar with in pop culture, right, Lindsay? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I and when we say pop culture, right, popular culture, it's yes. been pop culture since ancient Greece. <laughs> <laughs> This is every song, every painting, every novel, every poem since the beginning, literally, of pop culture. (laughs) So Eros is named after the Greek god of love and fertility, and he represents sexual passion and desire. But apparently the ancient Greeks considered Eros to be dangerous because this kind of love can result in a loss of control. It's primal, animalistic. There's that drive to procreate that people can say is really hard to control. Mm -hmm. Now, when used properly, there can be a beautiful, passionate, deep physical connection between a husband and a wife, but it can also be misused and abused, right, Michelle? It can break hearts Mm -hmm. and marriages and families. Eros is a fire that burns hot, but it burns out quickly. So like you were saying earlier, in order for that fire to endure, it needs those deeper forms of love to be present. Eros can be selfish um, and it can just kind of devolve into personal physical pleasure. Yeah, you're right. Like without the other forms of love, Eros can quickly become disordered, right? And that can become self-seeking and that's where a lot of problems stem from. Um, And it just becomes a justification for selfishness a lot of the time. But uh, it actually 
just pertains to this this passion, like what you were talking about. And um, C.S. Lewis describes Eros. It actually he actually makes a distinction of Eros between Eros and Venus. Right. So Venus he would describe as that raw sexuality, whereas Eros yeah. is described as like the feeling of being in love or like loving someone with this passion, this heartfelt passion. So like the distinction could be described as like the difference between wanting a woman and wanting one particular woman. And that's according to him. And I thought that was a really uh, interesting distinction to make because I I know like I can see why the ancient Greeks would fear Eros, right? Without an understanding of what it could be without proper control. And I think what C.S. Lewis does with Eros is it, it gives it a little bit of reason and rationalizing behind it so it's not quite so wild i think that's fascinating because i actually looked into cupid right the (laughs) winged Mm -hmm. fat cherub and cupid is the latin version of the name but his greek counterpart is eros and in a lot of mythology Mm. eros is the son of venus and mars and so kind of like what lewis is saying Venus represents love, but Mars represents war. And so it's like the pure love version at odds with like the bodily, um, like animalistic side of war. Right. And so having those two things Mm -hmm. together. Now, the last of the four loves in stark contrast is actually something that we don't see very often at all in pop culture, right? And that is agape, which is uh, the greatest of the four loves it's described as. And yeah, you you don't get a lot of movies made about agape, but Mm -hmm. everybody admires and reveres it, but it doesn't sell books. It doesn't, it doesn't grab you like in a movie, but it's the one thing everybody wants. So it's that selfless love. It's the highest and the most radical. I love that word, radical type of love. It is unconditional. It is pure and free from desires and expectations. It is a love that flows regardless of what the other person is doing. This is a deeply spiritual love. It is a love that sees the big picture. This is what we were saying about the St. Thomas Aquinas quote. This is the love that wills the good of the other, but for the other, not for yourself. I Mm -hmm. feel like agape is the kind of love that is often thrust upon us when a crisis or a situation happens that you weren't prepared for, that you don't know if you have the capacity for, that you have no idea what it's going to feel like. Um, And it's either a dying parent or a crisis with your spouse or even having your first baby. You have no idea what that's going to feel like and nobody can explain it to you, right? Mm -hmm. I always say with motherhood, um, that if somebody were to give you a glimpse, a feeling of what that love is for only five minutes and then take it away from you and you could never have it again, you wouldn't want to live. Once mm. you felt that, you there's no going back. It is truly um, a game changer. And so this kind of love, though, there's no describing it. There's no understanding it until you're you're there and you have to rise to it. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly it. You have to rise to this kind of love, whereas the other ones just kind of, um, they may just happen, right? Or you may come across them as chance. Agape is like the truest choice of love, yeah. right? Because it is it is manifested when one has a lot to give and they give it to another one who is needy. So there's self-donation without thought of a reward, right? Yeah. There's, there's just absolute abandonment of self. And this, like, 
I know we can get down on pop culture about agape, but I mean, really, I think because of all of our fallen human natures, agape is, it seems like unattainable for all of yeah. us <laughs> because we, we have this intrinsic like selfishness and desire that is hard to eradicate completely from our lives. And, yeah. and that's why like this type of love is the love of Jesus Christ. And it's his perfect example of that, yeah. that we look to for the ultimate example of what agape is, because no one can even come close to showing us what agape love looks like uh, apart from God himself. It's truly a sacrificial love, right? And it requires a death to self. And, mm. um, you know, what's interesting is, you know, the often read passage at a Corinthians that's read at every wedding, love is patient, love is kind. Um, I actually heard years mm. ago from Bishop Barron, I believe it was from him that the proper translation of that word is not actually love. It's charity. Charity is oh. patient. Charity is kind, but it's not our definition of charity either. It is the agape sense of love and charity mixed together. And it just became easier and more poetic to say love is patient, love is kind. But that's not what exactly it means. It means this kind of of, of, um, of charitable love. Now, there is there can be a dark side to agape. And so when I was learning about it from a psychological standpoint, um, ideally, it's that selfless love like you're talking about. And But there is a tendency in some people to get something called a helper's high off this type of love. Oh, and it can also open up a feeling of being indebted to that person, especially if you're in a crisis in your life. Like, I mean, like you're getting chemo done and they're bringing you or like, you know, like really, really bad things. If somebody pours that out onto you, a lot of people can never repay that. And so it can cause an imbalance in a friendship later on. Um, but regardless of all those things, this is the type of love that we're called to as Christians. And it's the type of love that we should all be aiming for ultimately as we grow older in our life. Okay, it's time for our What We're Loving This Week segment of the show. So Lindsay, what have you been loving this week? Are we allowed to say what we're loving this week, Michelle? Or should we say like what oh. we're appreciating this week? <laughs> what I'm fond of this week. Right, right. <laughs> well, I'm fond of a show that a lot of people were telling me to watch, including you. Uh, that's on the Canadian channel CBC. And it's called Back in Time for Winter. So you and I have talked about this, right? Have you watched it yet? No, I only started watching the first episode, but I really liked it so okay. far. It's so good. And so it follows a real family from Northern Ontario, and they have to spend one week living how people lived in the Northern regions of Ontario. People are going to laugh from the rest of Canada because it's not actually North, right? Like I don't think Sudbury <laughs> or Thunder Bay is actually considered the North, but anyways, these people are right. North of Toronto. Um, yes. <laughs> and it shows how they have to survive the winter in each decade. So um, each episode is a different decade and they go from the forties to the nineties. The coolest thing is that they actually have their house, their modern house stripped down to the studs and it's completely renovated like right down to the last detail for each decade in their kitchen and their living room and their front entry so they get to walk back into their house every time and it's completely different and the other cool thing they nail the costumes like this family looks mm. fantastic um 
Now, fans of, the, fans of the British television version, like I am, will be familiar with the concept because there was a show called Back in Time for Dinner. And I actually think I probably had it as my What I'm Loving This Week um, mm-hmm. last year. But it's a very similar idea. And it's just a great, again, family show. We don't have cable, but CBC has an app called CBC Gem. And that's on my TV, but I'm sure you can get it on anything else. And that's what we watch it on, Back in Time for Winter. That is so cool. I know from the from the previews and the trailers of the show, I'm just fascinated by the laundry machine mm-hmm. scene. And um, yeah, just thinking about how daily life would have worked. We often focus on the big events in history, but domestic history in and of itself is fascinating. So what have you been loving this week? So we are actually partway, almost done, a documentary uh, on Netflix called 50-50-50. And this is the story of a man who commits to doing 50 Ironman triathlons in 50 states in 50 days. What? So he's insane. (laughs) Right. So this is the story of a crazy person. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, So for those who don't know, because I sure didn't, um, an Ironman distance of a triathlon are a 2.4 mile swim. Mm-hmm. That's like almost four kilometers. Uh, 112 mile bike, which is 180 <laughs> kilometers, and a 25.22 mile run, which is 42 kilometers. I think that is the distance of a marathon, if I'm not mistaken. So that's one race. And like these people race for hours. And it's really fascinating to watch this man try to do one after another every single day and what the impact is on his body and his mental state. Mm -hmm. Like you watch it and there are some documentaries that are like pure inspiration, right? And this is one of the ones you watch and you're like, I don't know whether to feel inspired and motivated because it's such a feat of human strength and endurance. Um, But also think like, you can stop. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody asked you to do this. Um, sir, hi. <laughs> Michelle. <laughs> I know. The mother in me is like, you should take a break. Yeah. That's Let fine. me get you something to eat. <laughs> um, so yeah, a typical race time for a triathlon is about like eight to 13 hours. Um, and that's like not factoring in like if you did one the day before and the day before. Um, yeah. And usually the organizers are super kind and they give a general 16 to 17 hour window to complete a race. I can't even imagine moving at intensity for that long. No. <laughs> so any in any case, um, it, it is a fascinating look into this sport of triathlons uh, and it's called 50 50 50. And uh, it's an interesting watch if you're looking at a documentary that highlights the limit of the human body. Okay, that's going to do it for us this week. If you want to get in touch and chat with us about our topic today, you can find us on our website, www.themodernlady1950.wordpress.com or leave us a comment on Facebook or Instagram at The Modern Lady Podcast. I'm Michelle Sachs, and you can find me on Instagram at mmsachs. And I'm Lindsay Murray, and you can find me on Instagram at lindsayhomemaker. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, and we will see you next time. Thank you.